What's going on guys? Welcome back to the show. Today we have a training Q&A. So thank you to everybody who asked a question. And I'm going to see how many of these I can get through in about 30 minutes. There's quite a bit of them. I took some of the ones that I felt would be most applicable to everybody. And let's jump into it. First question is from Michael623. And he asks, what is the point of cluster sets? So a cluster set would be like one set that involves, let's say you're doing chin-ups and a cluster set would be three sets of one is one set. So you would do one chin-up and then rest maybe 20 seconds and then one chin-up and then rest maybe whatever, 20 to 60 seconds and then do another chin-up and that would be one set and then you might rest a little bit longer in between those cluster sets. I would say the best or in my opinion, the way I would use cluster sets for my clients is if they're doing something like a chin-up where maybe they can get one really good rep, but they can't quite string together two reps in a continuous fashion going from one rep into the next rep. Or maybe they can do two reps, but maybe they can't do three or four reps, but we wanna accumulate more volume. We wanna practice this movement. And I do think chin-ups is probably one of the one of the places where I do use cluster sets where you'll do a set of one or two and then rest maybe 20 seconds to get another one or two and then 15 seconds and then another one or two and then maybe two minutes rest. And you might do that two or three times. Um, and so the point of a cluster set, in my opinion, for the best application for hypertrophy is if you can't really string together several good reps uh, of, of a movement, but you could, if you rested maybe 15 to 30 seconds and you could string together several good cluster sets so you could accumulate more volume that way and you could accumulate more practice of the movement, this could be a decent application for that. Outside of that, I don't really think that there's much reason to do cluster sets uh, other than it might be a fun way to change things up. Next question is from Hannah Swain, and she asks, what are the benefits of taking EAAs before a morning workout if I'm training fasted? Now, anytime you ask what's what you know, what's good about this, are there any benefits of this? We have to talk about it in the context of compared to what. And so what I'll say right off the bat is that if you're training fasted, EAAs can help provide some fuel for the liver. We don't need to go into too much about that right now, but it's better than nothing, okay? So we're talking about this in the context of compared to what? So EAAs before a morning workout compared to what? Compared to nothing, EAAs are a little bit better, sure. What about compared to having a pre-workout meal, even a small meal, even a, a, even a small, like a banana or a Greek yogurt or something that might have a little bit of carbohydrate, a little bit of protein? I'd say that the pre-workout meal, even a small one, would be better, let's say. Uh, and so I'd say, okay, compared to nothing, EAAs are better. Compared to a pre-workout meal, even a small one, uh, the pre-workout meal would win. Now you might say, okay, I'm, I'm training really close to the time I wake up and I'd rather not spend the calories there if I'm gonna maybe not feel so great during my workout if I have too much you know, food in my stomach. Okay, fine, uh, fine trade-off, no problem. What about, tra you know, what about EAAs versus like intra-workout carbs? And so you're like, okay, uh, EAA before my morning workout, what about compared to intra-workout carbs? I would say intra-workout carbs would win for sure, um, definitely. Uh, you know, even though we're not really like, even though we're not really depleted in terms of muscle glycogen after you sleep, that's just not what happens. Your your blood glucose stays where it is because of liver glycogen, not really depletion of muscle muscle glycogen. So it's not like, you know, we have this big need to replenish muscle glycogen upon waking up or even right into that workout. But I would say inter-workout inter carbs would be superior in, in all ways. However, you might say, again, I'd like to save the carbs or I'd like to save the calories. I would respond with, you don't need a lot of intra-workout carbs to get the benefits. You could take 20 grams of carbohydrate, you know, 80 calories, um, and it would suffice. Again, you could say, I don't want the calories. Okay, fine, no problem. What about EAAs compared to BCAAs? EAAs are better. 
Um, and then the last comparison I'd, I would make would be, what about compared to just having fuel after, right? What about just, okay, I work out fasted and then I have protein afterwards. I cannot imagine there's a world of difference. So personally, I would have food beforehand uh, and, it, you know, even just a freaking banana, something you digest very quickly or intra-workout carbs, or I would just worry about fueling after my workout adequately. But man, you know, if you like EAAs and it's and you don't want to spare any calories beforehand and you, and you feel like, you know, I don't want to go into my workout having anything, anything in my stomach, I don't feel good, I think it's fine. Uh, I just don't think it's going to make a world of difference. You could train fasted and just fuel adequately after and you're going to be fine. Next question is from AA Cruel and she asks, is, I think she, sorry, is the landmine squat a good alternative for the front squat? Uh, sure. I, I guess, uh, if, if you're looking at the front squat, what's the goal of the front squat? The goal of the front squat is to train the quads in the length and position. And does the landmine squat do that as well? It does for hypertrophy. You could make a decent case that the landmine squats actually a better quad exercise just because of the lack of core stability needed when compared to the front squat. I think the front squat is a fine exercise in the context of in, in context, other than optimizing hypertrophy, uh, when it comes to optimizing hypertrophy, I'd say the front squat falls short due to the uh, necessity of core engagement, a lot of core engagement. Most people fail in their front squat, not because their quads are taken close to failure, but because either their cardiovascular system or their you know thoracic spine extension, those upper back muscles tend to fail first, and that makes it a poor exercise for hypertrophy. Next question is from Welch14, and she asks, what are cues for B-stance good mornings? I feel like I squat too much with the back leg. Well, what I'll say is B-stance good morning or not, or regular good morning, whichever one you're doing, if you're feeling, feeling like you're squatting too much, then it's pretty, I would say, again, I can't see your technique. It's ridiculously hard to say. Um, but my guess is that you're just bending the knees too much. What I will say is that back leg isn't the, necessarily the working leg, right? And so if you're doing a B stance, it's a modified single leg stance where one leg is working, the other leg is just very gently on the floor for stability so that you don't need to do a full single leg version. Um, and so that back leg, whether it's bent or not, it's gonna be to some degree based on how far like kicked back it is. Uh, and so I'd worry more about what that front leg is doing. If that front leg is bending too much, then okay, well, it should bend, bend your leg less and it will be more of a hinge and less of a squat. Next question is from, ooh, I didn't write down who this is from. Uh, anyways, good, good question. Some pros and cons of unilateral exercises. Okay, um, some pros of unilateral exercises. You could work, you could use them to work on muscle imbalances. And so, you know, I, and I know I talk about, I talk a lot about how most of the time this isn't really an issue. Most people don't have muscle imbalances that are so great that they're, you know, in, they intrude upon your life in any meaningful way. You know, none of us are, are perfectly symmetrical. We aren't meant to be perfectly symmetrical. And so imbalances in and of themselves like are normal. But if it's something that's, you know, uh, somehow real, like you have, you've had an injury, I'll tell you right now, I prefer doing unilateral quad exercises, split squats, um, in particular, because I've had some knee issues on my right knee. And I do find that if I do bilateral movements that I can feel my left side really taking over. So that doesn't mean I don't do hack squats or back squats or, you know, leg press and leg extensions. I do, but I definitely make sure to emphasize doing split squats. Um, and I'd also say it provides some, a bit of a unique stimuli due to like body positioning sometimes. So let's take a split squat, for example, a unilateral exercise. The point of the split squat, yes, you are working the front leg mostly, but the split squat, because it's unilateral exercise, because that other leg is kicked back, actually allows you to train the rec fem, which is a post I just literally made yesterday, uh, in the lengthened position. So that back leg is actually getting a unique 
uh, training stimulus because of the position you're in because of the unilateral nature of that exercise. I'd also say body position, body positioning is just going to be way better, uh, for certain exercises. So let's take like a preacher curl or you guys know, like that, um, tricep extension machine where you have to like squeeze the pad into your back and then you kind of get wedged in like a sausage. And then you have your two arms and you kind of press away like a seated skull crusher to some degree. Now that exercise and a preacher curl, if you're doing them bilaterally, and you're a relatively large person, you have a little bit more muscle mass, chances are it's going to force you into a little bit more, too much adduction and internal rotation, which isn't going to be optimal for output at the triceps and the bicep. Uh, and so when you're doing, let's take a preacher curl, for example, let's say you're doing a preacher curl bilateral with two arms, you're sitting at the machine, what's going to end up happening for most people is they're going to be in an uncomfortable state of adduction and internal rotation, and they're not going to really be able to get like an, an, option, an optimal arm path for the bicep, for elbow uh, elbow flexion. And so normally this exercise is gonna be a little bit better single arm because you what you can do is you can rotate. And obviously you guys can't see what I'm doing now. I'm fucking sitting in this chair doing it, but you can rotate your torso slightly so that your chest is now facing kind of diagonally. And now as your arm goes over the pad, your arm has a better path in what we would call the scapular plane uh, for better uh, bicep uh, output there. So cool. Uh, and sometimes it gives you better stability. Let's say you're doing, the one that comes to mind for me is like a, a single arm, uh, let's say single arm lat pull down or single arm chest assisted lat pull down or whatever, like giving you your offhand the opportunity to brace against something can help that other arm that's working uh, provide like a little bit better output. Uh, so those of you guys who have done single arm lat pull down with me, you know that having that offhand to brace against a bench, for example, can give you that stability that you need to isolate the tissue on the working side a little bit better. Now the cons would be sometimes it requires more stability. Um, sometimes doing single arm and single leg work requires more stability, more core stability, more anti-rotation work. And so that can be a con depending on the exercise selection. And then of course the big con is time. You know, if you have only time, you know, 10 minutes to get as much output as possible, I'm gonna put you in the hack squat before I put you in, you know, single leg split squats, just because you're gonna be able to get more bang for your buck from a time perspective in a bilateral movement. Uh, and that is a realistic thing. I think if you had to tell me which, you know, what's more systemically fatiguing for me mentally and also physically, like three rounds of split squats, right, left, right, left, right, left, or three sets of a bilateral hack squat. Now, the hack squat is deadly uh, in and of itself, but I'd rather do the hack squat 10 out of 10. Next question is from Cryan6925. What's the best way to deal with DOMS? Should I train through it or wait for it to pass? So DOMS, uh, delayed onset muscle soreness, aka soreness. What's the best way to deal with soreness? Should I train through it or should I wait for it to pass? You should absolutely not train through it and you should absolutely wait for it to pass, 100%. You should not be training sore muscles. Now, if occasionally, once in a while, you show up to your leg training or whatever and you're, you know that muscle group is just the tiniest bit sore, it's not like you need to scrap the whole workout, wait another week. What I would say though is that you should not be chronically, continuously, week to week training on sore muscles. If it happens once in a while, it's not the end of the world. But if it's happening frequently where you're showing up to the gym still sore for that muscle group, you know, you're doing something wrong, either just by scheduling the workouts too close together or by, you know, maybe doing too much volume in that first workout or your recovery sucks, maybe your calories, your carbohydrates, your sleep, your stress management aren't really in check. And so it's obviously always like a work to recovery ratio. I don't know which one of those you're doing too much of, but if you're showing up to the gym every single time with DOMS, then you're either doing too much in the previous session or that previous session is too close to this session, or maybe you have those two things in check, but your recovery sucks and you know, for it, for at face value, it might look like a good program with a good setup, but you don't sleep and you're in a deficit and you don't eat carbs and you're you know not hydrated and don't have electrolytes, et cetera. 
Next is from Pauline Tufi, and she asks, can you explain why being sore doesn't mean a good workout for hypertrophy? Oh, good, good follow-up here. Um, yeah, it's interesting. They are correlated, and so they are correlated, and in some in some mechanisms, they are causative. And so, you know, being sore, I'm trying to figure out the best way to explain this. So being sore is a, a component of, or, or uh, uh, it, it happens due to, let's say, primarily muscle damage. Uh, and muscle damage or mechanical damage is a, one of the main drivers of hypertrophy. And so you could say, okay, so I'm trying to get mechanical damage because it's the main driver of hypertrophy, but one of the side effects of mechanical damage is that I'm sore. If so facto, being sore, meaning I'm getting hypertrophy. That's true to some extent, right? And so there's a couple sentences that I think are most important to take away here. And the first is that just because you're sore does not mean you got hypertrophy, right? If I go out and I do hill sprints or I go for a long run or I play soccer, I play soccer all the time, I'm pretty fucking sore the next day. But that does not, because I'm sore, does not by itself mean I got hypertrophy. I'm sore from a run, but running did not cause hypertrophy. And so they are not you know, just because you are sore does not mean hypertrophy. It means muscle damage um, to some degree and, and, of course, other factors as well. And so just because you're sore does not mean you got hypertrophy. The second is you can get hypertrophy without being sore. And so <laughs> I just said that there's a big correlation, but you can get hypertrophy without being sore and being sore does not mean you got hypertrophy. So what are we left with? We're left with this idea that if you are never, ever, ever sore, if you're like, hey, I'm Jordan, I've been doing your program for eight weeks and I'm never sore, well then chances are you're not getting your best gains. Like it, the extremes leave clues. If you're never sore, chances are you could benefit from doing more. Now more might not mean more sets. It might not be in another workout. It might mean working harder in the sets that you're already doing, which frankly should be your first you know, port of call. It should be your first line of defense there. It's like, am I working hard with what I'm already doing? The second extreme is if you're always obliterated, like the last question, then you're, would prob then you're probably doing too much. You'd probably get better hypertrophy with less. Now, remember guys, this is not, the goal is not to be the most, the, the most sore. The goal is not to do the most work. The goal is to get the best hypertrophy. And so if doing less means you're not chronically sore, that means you will get better hypertrophy. This is not like, oh, I'm being a little bitch and I can't handle all this training. I guess I'm not gonna get great gains. You will get better gains by doing the kind of training that doesn't leave you always obliterated training through soreness. Right? You will get the best gains when you get probably here and there a little sore and you recover by the time you have to work that muscle group again. All right, we're doing good on time here. 15 minutes in. All right, uh, I'm gonna get through all these. Santiago asks, is lowering the weight and increasing reps an optimal form of progressive overload? So you're lowering the weight and increasing reps. Wouldn't that, you know, at the face value, that's not progressive overload. So let's say you're doing 10 reps of 100 pounds and now you're doing 12 reps at 80 pounds. That might not be progressive overload. Um, and so keeping weight the same and increasing reps over time is progressive overload and keeping the reps the same and increasing the weight over time would be progressive overload. But if one goes up and the other goes down, uh, it might not be progressive overload. In the same way, if you were doing 10 reps of 100 pounds and then you did 12 reps at 80 pounds, that might not be progressive overload. Just like if you were doing 100 pounds for 10 reps and now you're doing 100 pounds, 120 pounds for seven reps, that might not be progressive overload. That doesn't mean you should never, you know, shoot for going for a higher weight or shoot for going for a higher reps and or, you know, change your rep ranges here and there. But the question is, is lowering weight and increasing reps an optimal form of progressive overload. At face value, it might not be 
any form of progressive overload, if your weight goes down, you would expect your reps to go up. So it might be equal, actually. Next question for, uh, from McCoop. I don't know. McCoop asks, for body recomp, are lighter weights with more reps? Oh, this is a good follow-up question. Are lighter weights with more reps equal to heavier weights with less reps? Now, there is going to be more to what I'm about to say than what I'm about to say. But what matters most, guys, is getting close to failure. We see almost equivalent hypertrophy between five and 30 reps when the sets are taken equally close to failure. So your question for body recomp, which we can we can uh, trade out the word body recomp and just say muscle growth. For, for hypertrophy, are lighter weights with more reps equal to heavier weights with less reps? And then I will add to that, the answer is yes, if the sets are taken equally close to failure. Now, that doesn't mean that a set of five and a set of 30 are equivalent in all shapes and forms. They are not, they're a little bit different. But across the, the whole of your training, if we look at the pyramid and we say, what matters most? How many reps am I doing? Or how close to failure am I getting? How close to failure you're getting? How close to failure you're getting, you're getting and how many sets of that you're doing is going to be more important in terms of the overall hypertrophy output that you get than how many reps you did. If someone's like, hey, I did you know, one set to failure at 20 reps and someone else did four sets to failure at 12 reps, the, the fact that they both went equally close to failure but one person did more sets probably, again, this is just in a bubble, means that that person got more hypertrophy. So you can train with lighter weights as long as you're within the, let's say 30 or below rep range. Although I would say that from an efficiency standpoint, I'd, I'd, I'd probably put an asterisk and say, you're probably best under 20. You might even be best for most exercises under 15. Um, and so from an efficiency standpoint, I wouldn't flex that up to 30 rep range. I'd probably stay a little bit closer in, in that like, I don't know, six to 15 for the most part. And then occasionally above that, let's say. Um, cool. Next questions from intention to 2021. And she asks, how many sleeps until your program comes out? It's really nice of you to ask. Uh, I'm going to be posting about the, the programs that I'm releasing in about two weeks. I'm going to be giving all the details, you know, who the program's for, what equipment that you need, what are the, you know, what's the split like, what to expect, you know, is it for newbies, all of that stuff. Uh, I'm going to be posting on my feed probably in, in about two weeks. But both mesocycles, I'll give a little bit of detail now, both mesocycles are going to start October 1st. I'm going to have one program for people that have full access to a gym, and I'm going to have another program for people that are training at home. And what I will say is this is not a one-on-one -on -one coaching program. So if you know, I'm going to list a list, uh, I'm going to list a list of equipment that you need if you're training at home. And if you don't have half the stuff, then, then I'm not going to be providing 900 different swaps for everybody. And that's not because I wouldn't like to do that. I do that with my one-on-one -on -one coaching clients all the time. And that is the benefit of one-on-one -on -one coaching. If you're like, hey, I only have dumbbells, bands, and a bench build me the best workout. That's what one-on-one -on -one coaching is for. This is not that. This is a much cheaper option with wonderful programming, but it's going to be difficult for me to accommodate a million different, you know, lists of, of equipment. So I would check out that list and I would say, hey, if I want this programming, which I would say I've already written the first couple of mesocycles, it's going to be super fucking awesome. I'm so excited. It would be worth going out and, and purchasing some of this. No, you don't, you're not going to need fucking cable racks and expensive leg extensions for your house. Of course not. Um, but you'll see the list when it comes out. Next question is from Odd. It's actually a pair of questions. Odd218 asks, is there any benefit to doing an RDL with a band around the hips? And then F.E. Halta asks, in RDLs, should we squeeze glutes at the top? And I'll tell you why I paired these questions together. So everybody think about doing an RDL. 
When you are at the bottom of the RDL, your glutes are fully stretched, your hams are stretched. That is the portion of the exercise that is the most difficult. That is kind of, we could call that, that's the point of the RDL. The point of the RDL is to challenge the glutes in the length and position. Now, when you stand up in an RDL and you are standing straight up, is there any tension on the glutes? No, the joints are stacked, you're just standing there. What do the glutes do? They extend your hips. They push your hips for all intents and purposes. They push them forward. And so when you're standing up out of the RDL, as you get closer to the top and you extend the hips, you are finishing what the glutes are meant to be doing. And when you are standing up, they are no longer working. And so the first question I'll I'll say is from Effie Halta. She asks, in RDL, should we squeeze the glutes at the top? Now, if you squeeze the glutes at the top, what you are doing is you're extending your hips forward. And what that would mean is that there would have to be some tension coming from behind you for the glutes to be doing anything. And so a lot of people are out there squeezing their glutes super hard, posterior tilting at the top of their RDL. But really what you're doing is you're just clenching your butt cheeks. Like you could just fucking stand up and clench your butt cheeks and it would be the same thing. And so don't squeeze your butt aggressively at the top. One, in your squats, it's the same thing. And two, in your RDLs, because the point of the RDLs to challenge the glutes in the lengthened position and the hamstrings. Uh, and when you stand up, there is no longer any tension. It's almost like a point of rest, let's say. I mean, you, you shouldn't be resting, but as you stack the joints, there's no longer any tension. Now, the question above is, is there any benefit to doing an RDL with a band around the hips? Now, we'll call this a band-resisted RDL, where you would attach a band behind you, and you would wrap that band around your waist. Now, as you're doing that RDL at the bottom, you're getting a lot of tension because that's what the RDL does, stretches the glutes at the bottom in in that hip hinge position. And as you start to stand up and you're extending your hips, the band is trying to pull you back into hip flexion and you are extending your hips against the band. And so yes, is there a benefit to doing a band-resisted RDL? Absolutely yes. It gives your glutes something to do at the top and it challenges your glutes across a larger portion of the range of motion. A band-resisted RDL is hard at the bottom, like every RDL is, but it's also kind of hard at the top because it's giving your glutes something to do. So it is a very high output exercise. That doesn't mean it's better in all contexts, but it is a hell of a good exercise that challenges your glutes throughout a wide uh, portion of the range of motion, basically the entire portion of the range of motion. And so yes, there's absolutely a benefit. Now, when you should do that, where you should put in your programming, we're not gonna talk about that right now, but there is absolutely a benefit. Next question is from Hannah Bananas, and she asks, straight sets versus a top set. Now, uh, you know, this is not even, it's like, uh, it's, it's very contextual. And so I'll give you, I'll try and paint a little bit of a picture here. So if you're doing a top set, that means at least in the way you are saying it is that you are doing one top set. That means you are warming up and then you are doing one single top set, often to failure, let's say. And so we have on one side of the scale or one side of this comparison, we have a bunch of warm-up sets and then one top hard set to failure. On the other side of the comparison, we have straight sets, which probably means several sets kind of close to failure, right? Several sets of, you know, three by 10, a four by eight to 12, whatever. And so we have one where there is only one high output set to failure versus straight sets, which is probably multiple sets that are within the stimulative range, which are close enough to failure. So I would say at face value, given that context, which I'm not assuming is the only context, we're gonna start with that, the top set is more of a strength program. It's not enough volume. If your program has 
four top sets and that's it, it's a really good strength program. But it's just not gonna be enough volume. You can't do four exercises, each that only has one top set, and then all the other sets that you did were not stimulative, they were warm-ups for this top set. That's more of a strength program. And again, that's not the only thing that would be a strength program, but just not enough volume to optimize hypertrophy. Um, yeah, you're working really hard, close to failure, and that set is certainly stimulative, and it, you're definitely gonna get some hypertrophy, but it's probably not optimal. Now, you could say, what about doing top sets with down sets? So let's say you do one top set to failure for a set of six, and then a couple more sets on the back end of that, maybe in a slightly higher rep range that are in the stimulative range, so now you're accumulating more volume that way. I think that is a fine way to go about it. However, I still think that that has more of a strength focus, uh, and because of the, the, the nature of the top set, I also think that this probably only applies to really strong people who are so fucking strong that if they do, let's say, hack squats and they're doing sets of six to eight or something, that they are so strong, they're moving so much weight, it's so systemically taxing compared to, you know, you and me who are doing a lot less weight that to continue working at that really high level of intensity might have a not the best stimulus to fatigue ratio. And so that maybe dropping down into a different rep range after that might be for that person who's extremely strong, somewhat optimal. All of that being said, I just think for the average person, myself included, 99 out of 100 times, it's way more mental effort than, than it's worth um, because it's almost worth nothing compared to straight sets. I'm not saying it's bad doing a top set and, draw, and down sets. I'm saying it just doesn't, you couldn't tell me that there's a massive benefit to it and it might be more confusing for more people. Doing straight sets is pretty simple. It's like, hey, we're gonna do sets of eight to 12 with this weight at this RIR and that's it. You know, doing a top set requires doing multiple different weights in multiple different rep ranges. Now, again, I don't think it's massively confusing. I think people can absolutely handle that. Um, but I just see it as an added layer of complexity that for hypertrophy might have not, not none, but not a ton of application. Again, you know, I know some good coaches out there who do like one heavy top set. Um, and while I believe that there's hypertrophy there, and I do believe that pushing, you know, calling something a top set probably gets people to try a little bit harder, which is most people's gap, frankly, is they're not trying hard enough in their sets. And so you might be like, hey, I started doing a, a program with top sets and I started getting great hypertrophy. And it's like, well, really what you started doing was actually fucking getting close to failure, finally, and you got some hypertrophy. And so it's it's a difficult it's a difficult thing to parse out why that may or may not work. So next couple of questions, we'll get through these. It's from L. David 10 uh, and he asks, can males and females be on the same workout program if they have the same goals, in parentheses, fat loss? So what I'll say is that for the most part, you know, uh, what program you're doing and what your, you know, fat loss or muscle gain goals are, don't really, like that. they shouldn't really be two things you think about together. Like your goal during a fat loss phase is muscle maintenance. And so you still need to be doing hypertrophy style training and to, to, to send that hypertrophic sim, uh, s uh, signal to your body to maintain muscle as you lose fat. And so this idea of like, well, you know, how should I train? I'm going to get to your question in a second. It's like, I don't want you guys to think, okay, I'm in a fat loss phase. I need to drastically change my training. You don't. Now I would say that there is some nuance there and there are some things you can do in a fat loss phase to kind of maybe 
you know, mitigate some of the fatigue aspect and maximize some of the hypertrophy aspect. Um, but it doesn't matter a, a whole lot when compared to some of the other training variables, like getting close to failure, you know, you know proper exercise selection and, and execution, correct amount of volume, and then all of the recovery factors. Now, your question, can male and female be on the same workout program? Absolutely, 100%. I'd say the, the differences between males and females, I do have a podcast on that. I'll link in the description of training differences between males and females. And what I'll say is, because I know, I know that podcast very well, I've listened to it back a couple of times, is that there are there are many differences, but they're not so different that hypertrophy program for men and women, it's gonna look massively different. The biggest place it's going to look different, in my opinion, is going to be from a preference standpoint of the muscle groups that males and females typically, again, I'm making massive generalization uh, generalizations here, but to me, the biggest difference is the muscle groups that men and women wanna grow. You know, Most guys are gonna be like, yeah, I'm gonna do a little bit of more chest arms quads maybe, and uh, you know, a lot of women, again, not everybody, I'm not trying to put people in buckets, just saying, worked with a lot of people, seen a lot of suggestions and preferences. It's like women are gonna probably be like, yeah, a little bit more back shoulders, glutes, hams, um, you know, a little bit less pecs for women, I think just makes total sense. Obviously you should still work some pecs, um, but yeah, cool. Next question, Jess with a G asks, what is the difference between chalk and wrist wraps? Now, they both attempt to accomplish the same thing, and that is to prevent your grip from being the limiting factor in pulling exercises. So essentially, let's say you're doing deadlifts or you're doing you know pull-ups or, or rows, and you're finding that your grip strength is the limiting factor. And the truth is, whatever is the limiting factor is the thing that's getting trained. And so if you could have done a couple more reps, but your grip gave out, then you missed out on back hypertrophy because of your grip. Now that personally isn't a trade I would ever wanna make. If you're finding that your grip is a limiting factor, just get a pair of wrist wraps or chalk and we'll talk about the difference in a second. But I don't think it's, man, I don't think, for, for me personally, I don't think getting diesel grip strength is in my top 10 list of things I feel like doing in the gym. Obviously I wanna have some grip strength so I can carry the groceries in, but I think we can all accomplish that with like six months of weight training. Uh, and so the difference between chalk and wrist wraps I would say is twofold. One. Uh, wrist wraps are probably better. Actually, wrist wraps are definitely better in terms of accomplishing the goal of giving you superhuman grip strength. And they, you don't fucking, you're not LeBron James fucking making a huge mess in the gym. Um, I've been to, you know, I've been in many gyms over the years and I've had gyms that had chalk fucking everywhere, very old school bodybuilding, powerlifting gyms. That's cool. Uh, and if you're in a gym like that and you wanna go ahead and use chalk, that's fine, but you're not, you're not walking into like Gold's or Crunch or Planet Fitness for God's sakes and with chalk. And so they both accomplish the same thing. I'd say wrist wraps probably do it better from a functional standpoint. They are also less like, uh, you know, less making a fucking mess everywhere. And so you could use chalk, chalk's fine. It's gonna accomplish the goal most likely, but wrist straps are gonna do it better and cleaner. Kemper James asks, do stomach vacuums do anything? Um, they don't do anything in terms of shrinking your waist. And I think that that's the common misconception is that people think they're gonna do, uh, stomach vacuums gonna shrink their waist. That's not a thing. They don't do that. Um, they make you better at doing vacuums. That's about it. And so if your goal is to do a vacuum on stage because it looks cool, then go nuts. If your goal is to shrink your waist, then probably don't need to be doing vacuums. Okay, last question is from Bodybuilding202021. That's a lot of numbers. Um, asks, wouldn't a neurophase make more sense during a cut? And so essentially what you're asking is, wouldn't a strength phase make more sense during a cut? Um, actually, I think it would make less sense doing a strength phase while you're in a calorie deficit. I think if you're in a calorie deficit, then you already are, like what's your goal of training during a calorie deficit? Muscle maintenance, right? I wanna maintain the muscle that I have while I'm losing fat. 
And so the stimulus, the hypertrophy stimulus you need to accomplish muscle maintenance in a deficit is equal to the amount of stimulus that you'll need to grow when you have more food. And so it's like, because you've lowered calories, you've now increased the need for that stimulus, right? If you have more food, then it's even less likely your body will take energy from muscle tissue. Now that you're in a deficit, it's a little bit more likely that your body will take energy from everywhere. And so you need to send that hypertrophic stimuli, that signal to your body of like, hey, don't touch my muscle. And so I would say doing a strength phase, which is less <laughs> less optimal for hypertrophy, wouldn't be the best idea seeing as though you really need all your ducks in a row training hard just to maintain muscle in a deficit. And so I wouldn't leave any stone unturned in terms of hypertrophy um, by doing a strength training phase while I'm in a calorie deficit risking some form of muscle loss at that time. So um, I would say the I would say the only time to do a strength phase would actually be at maintenance. Doing a strength phase in a surplus would be wasting the most powerful ingredient that you have, which is an excess of calories on a style of training that isn't meant to maximize, uh, you know, the growth of new muscle tissue. And so if you're doing a neuro phase, I would recommend if you're doing a strength training phase, and if you guys have no fucking clue what this means, trust me, if you join my programs, we will be having some form of periodization. And so what that means is we will be doing mostly hypertrophy training because that is what the program is for. But even in the context of hypertrophy, there are going to be benefits of having some form of periodization where you periodize the stimulus a little bit, where you do a little bit of strength training because of the carryover it will have to your hypertrophy training. And so whatever, we'll discuss that a little bit deeper. But I would do a strength phase only at maintenance. Uh, It's not enough of a hypertrophy stimulus to maintain maximum muscle. It's not enough of a hypertrophy stimulus to maximize muscle growth in a surplus. And so I would say, hey, if you're gonna do a strength phase in an attempt to deload from hypertrophy, in an attempt to get some of those neurological adaptations that carry over to hypertrophy, I would do it at maintenance. All right, guys, this was super fun. Thanks to everybody who asked a question. I'll see you guys in the next episode. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Where Optimal Meets Practical. If you liked the episode, it would mean the world to me if you posted a screenshot to your social media or left a five-star review on iTunes. That stuff really helps. If you ever want to get in touch with me, just shoot me a DM on Instagram, at Jordan Lips Fitness. I'm always around to chat. Thanks, guys. Have a good one.